the cities generally turn away from their rivers. I mean, certainly Johannesburg, you know, the Yuxke provides a kind of backdoor access to the city. This is Johannesburg, the sprawling economic hub of South Africa, home to six million, built on the dust of gold mines. In the heart of the inner city, the source of a river called the Yuxke. In a sense, it's a little bit like riffling through garbage bins. You know, there's just all this data there because people assume nobody's going to go and look. And, and you just get these fascinating and quite, you know, quite squalid insights into the, the way that cities function. This is Sean Christie. He's explored this urban river. He's walked the length of the Yuxke from the polluted inner city past the office parks and into the suburbs. He's followed the water that runs from our taps into one of Johannesburg's few larger rivers. There's people in influential positions who really do think that, uh, you know, that some of these rivers are best written off you know, sort of reclassified as open sewers, that efforts to, to clean them up and make them, you know, make them accessible to the public are, are doomed to fail because the structural issues upstream are just so seemingly insurmountable. And then there's, uh, you know, then there's lots of groups that lobby really hard for, um, for recognition of these rivers and the restoration, you know, of, of dignity and, uh, you know, of environment. podcast is brought to you by Jojo, a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment. Please enjoy today's episode, a celebration of all things water and the people working tirelessly to protect it. You're listening to For Water For Life, the podcast series that tells extraordinary stories of ordinary people and water. They've made it their mission to preserve, purify and protect the water supply where we live in a water-scarce and unequal country called South Africa. I'm Kukuletum Flungu. And I'm Michelle Constant. Sean Christie is an award-winning journalist with an obsession for the Highfelds Rivers. These are the rivers that run along South Africa's inland plateaus at an altitude roughly above 1,500 metres. For a decade, his journalism has focused on what those rivers tell us about society, the country's infrastructure and the state of the environment. He believes there's no better way to know a city than knowing its river. But before we hear about Sean's incredible journey along the Yuxke, we need to sound an alarm. Here's what the journalist has discovered about the engineering of Joburg's outdated water systems. You know, Johannesburg's sanitation system is about a century old, the current one. It was built to last 50 years, so it's, it's 50 years overdue, a complete overhaul. And, uh, and Joburgers live with the consequences of that daily in terms of water interruptions, uh, sewage leaks. You know, it's, it's something that's become commonplace.
This is a city of dramatic summer thunderstorms. So just to be more technical about it, Johannesburg has what's called a superimposed system. So the stormwater drains, it's just basically concrete chambers underground. They sit above the sewage pipe, so superimposed above this 250 millimeter sewage pipe. And uh, that pipe along its length has various valves which are supposed to just pop up when there's too much pressure. The excess sewage can run in into the stormwater system without blowing up the pipe. Which is why his beloved Yuxke River is troubled by sewage pollution. It's the aging infrastructure and a backlog of maintenance and the use of superimposed sewage and stormwater systems. The sewage pipes are often blocked either because maintenance just can't keep up. But there's also um, this phenomenon of sewage mining where you know individuals will go into the stormwater system, block the sewage pipe with, with a blanket or a mattress that leads the sewage to back up. And then they open, open up the pipe and mine the sewage or valuables. So um, I, I guess you know, the, the problem we sit with is, is one of of uh, a huge bill needed to repair a very, very broken series of systems. Stormwater drains are crucial to absorb the heavy rains during storm season. But according to Sean's investigation, the broken drainage system absorbs a variety of waters that it wasn't designed for. And did you know that water has a signature? And one thing that I recently heard that really stuck with me is in these um, stormwater drains, you know, so much of Joburg's water flows in pipes or underground, recessed, and the water in the drains, the assumption is that it drains the surface water, so rain. But a, a hydrologist called Simon Lorenz sort of subjected samples to isotopic analysis and you know, water has a signature, it has an isotopic signature, which allows you to sort of work out where it comes from. And the water that he tested is the sa has the same signature as water from the Baal, which comes from, you know, uh, Lesotho. So if it's not rainwater largely in, in the stormwater drains, it's, it's water that's leaking out of, you know, of our pipes, which means that a lot of the flow in the Yuxke and other rivers will be from Lesotho, which is just, it's quite a bizarre thought. Lesotho is a small mountainous kingdom that's completely surrounded by its neighbor, South Africa. It's fertile ground for harvesting water. By contrast, Johannesburg is dry despite the storms. There's just not a lot of visible water, you know, and in order to, to sustain itself, this water is piped hundreds of kilometers from the Drakensberg and from Lesotho, an enormous engineering project uh, via, the, via the Val Dam into Johannesburg. The Lesotho Highlands Water Project is a complex water supply and hydropower project developed between the governments of Lesotho and South Africa. It stretches across about 1,200 kilometers, a system of several large dams and tunnels throughout Lesotho. It delivers water to the Val River system and eventually Johannesburg. Here on For Water for Life, we refer to it often 
because it's an extraordinary way to supply water to an ever-growing Johannesburg, the thirsty metropolis. And, you know, when there's huge outages of water, you know, maintenance and that kind of thing, certain rivers actually stop flowing. So that's really interesting, you know, this dependence on outside water. There's a question that's begging to be asked. Why is South Africa not capable of upgrading Johannesburg's decaying drainage systems, yet is capable of creating complex water supply systems? Part of the problem is that the disinvestment from the city centre and the fact that the system that was laid down was designed for a very different society. You know, it was a society with wealth. It was a time where businesses were headquartered in the city and there wasn't a lot of residential. With the fall of apartheid, and particularly the mobility strictures of apartheid, you know, people from the sub-Saharan region flocked to the Mecca of Johannesburg and a commercial uh, centre became a residential centre, carrying just a lot more in terms of population than it was ever designed to do, and with a lot less money available in the way of rates, because, you know, there was disinvestment from businesses, la landlords abandoned buildings, and, and with it went maintenance. Nothing like the required investment was available to deal with, with the new pressures. As these downtown communities grow, so do their needs, and so does the problem. You know, that remains the problem, and it's a football that gets kicked around between, you know, the city, the Joburg Roads Agency, Johannesburg Water. It's a very, very expensive problem. And, uh, you know, currently there's no real solution in sight. I mean, some councillors I've spoke to described it as an insuperable problem. In the meantime, what happens is the systems break down and the rivers catch what comes out. Social and economic differences between the suburbs and the working class in a city centre fuels the flames. Johannesburg has such a strange relationship to water. You know, it's, it's been sort of privatised, those you know, bodies of water that are above ground. You know, a lot of them are privatised behind big security fences. You know, the big northern security estates have uh, walled off large sections of the Yuxke. You know, it's a, it's a city not on any major water source to begin with. And so it's a little bit like, uh, I remember working in America and a study came out showing that very few American children understood that milk came from cows. I think it's the same with Joburgers. You know, there's a, there's a lack of understanding around where the water comes from and just, a, a, you know, often an absence of thought about water. This is rooted in the way South African cities were designed during apartheid, creating lines of division in the infrastructure between suburbs and townships that remain visible to this day. These severances make it easier to overlook the complexities of the problem that needs solving. I, I think to forget about the upstream issues is to live in a fantasy world. It, it's all very well to clear blackjacks and castor oily from, from the banks of the Yuxke that it's still going to be a toxic river if you don't address uh, the structural problems. And of course, the communities that are settled along rivers, like the Yuxke, are caught in these structural problems. Communities in Alexandra, one of South Africa's largest townships and poorest urban areas, are often exposed to dramatic impacts. 
societal margins often lie along these rivers, so it's dangerous. Uh, if you live in Shwetla in Alexandra, you know, you're subject to flooding, you're subject to this extraordinary E. coli count. And so I'm interested in what happens on, on the margins, societal margins of cities, and you can find that by walking the rivers. Water can play a different role in different communities. Besides their universal life-giving properties, our water bodies are often spiritual places of worship and places where we gather to connect and find peace. Water has so many meanings, different meanings for different, different people. You know, if you walk the Lombardy section of the river or the Alex section on the weekend, you'll just see um, so many different uses of the river, a sweat lodging, you know, St. John's Apostolic's purging using river water, Rastafarians in Alex, you know, sort of eking out an existence along the river banks, you know, still tending their gardens and attending their tabernacles. Following the Yuxke has, has just brought me into contact with so much about Joburg and Joburg society that I just uh, wasn't aware of. I wouldn't have encountered otherwise, I don't think. So it's just endlessly stimulating. Sangomas are traditional healers. They often work close to water, connecting us to the elements of nature. Tato Tsukudu is a Sangoma who also works with the South African National Parks, a state institution that manages 21 national parks and protected green areas. So with that considered, um, for us as healers, water is a very great purifier and cleanser. And water also, as a healing tool, is that it's transformative because it can change one form into another energetically. So what I mean by that is, okay, let me use rapids as, as, as an example. Rapids is obviously where the part of the river where it goes over and cascades over the rocks. So, and, and if I were to take someone for a cleansing there, already understand that that particular water that goes over the rapids is going at a specific speed and the currency is strong. So that currency to me represents a forceful energy, an energy of intention. The speed represents the energy of expediting something. So if I want to take someone somewhere where I want to evoke a forceful expediting of a certain thing in their lives, I would take them there. And then once it hits the rocks, there's almost sort of like an energy of violence as the water hits the rocks. But for me, that represents almost like an exorcism. You know, when it, when it really hits the rocks and then it changes, it transforms. And the different directions, you know, it hits the rocks and then it hits different directions and then it joins again and flows with the river. So also that is, is saying that I'm taking them through a process of forcefully expediting progress in their life that may come from different directions but may form a certain direction. And also the transformation from it hitting the rocks and being a rapid to then the continuous flow of the river is also a transformative energy. So you're transmuting one element of their life into another positively. Just by simply 
taking someone and cleansing them at a specific place like that, yeah. These ancient forms of healing for our communities rely on water bodies that are cared for, that are not polluted, so we may move in them freely without being exposed to harmful toxins that come from our taps and that are not privatized, so we may access them with ease. I wonder if indigenous practices could guide us to restore a sense of stewardship. In terms of custodianships, I believe that there are certain clans, tribes, lineages who are custodians of different natural spaces. And you'll always often hear it in terms of their clan totem or their surnames and what their surnames mean, you know. You'll know that Bakwena would be the custodians of certain types of rivers that have crocodiles in them, you know. And so as much as you've got the clan and the lineage custodians, I think I believe that you've also got healers or people who are gifted to be the ones who are the protector or the guardians of that river and what that river possesses in terms of that spirit of the water that also looks after that river or that lake or that ocean. So those men and women who would live near the ocean or the waters or the river would understand that their custodianship and their calling is to protect that space. That's why you'd see them living near that space because it's part of what is a generational calling for their clan, their tribe and themselves. Maybe the rivers are calling on us to remember that we are a part of them and they are part of us. No matter how far water has traveled and no matter how many times it has been recycled in our city. And it also goes back to the conversation about the influence of the cities on a state of being. There's something that really hurts me a lot is when I go to the river and I see that there's obviously been spiritually gifted people, whether it's people from an African traditional church or healers who have left items that they were using for the cleansing or their prayer or whatever it is at the river, where it starts to pollute the river. And also when we start to do cleansing ceremonies that also energetically pollute the river. So you always sometimes get to a river and you can just feel that there's spiritual traffic that is just not, shouldn't be here. And it pains me because it means that we also are not treating the river with respect as healers. And what healers really should do is understand that as much as I am taking someone to go cleanse at the river, I need to respect the fact that somebody else needs to come and also use that body of water. And so I also have a responsibility to also heal that body of water as well. But then, how do we walk each other back to valuing our water as communal sources of well-being that each and every one of us can care for, from river to tap and from tap to river? So it starts with a simple thing of creating a clean-up campaign with other healers, which is what I do from time to time. We get up and we go and we cleanse the river body, you know. There's a waterfall in Zanin near my friend's home where we were there for a New Year celebration and one of the directions that we got was we need to get all the healers together and we need to get black bin bags and go and just cleanse it in terms of the physical pollution. But then once we are done, we need to also cleanse its energy. And to cleanse its energy can be anything as simple as just around the space, just to purify the energy of the space. It could be about praying for the water. It could be about drumming for the water. And when communities come together, their impact is greater. 
But I think it also leads to a conscientization of healers understanding that they are the environmental custodians and they're responsible for looking after the environment as much as they, they want the environment or nature to look after us. Which brings us back to Sean walking the Yuxke River. At the same time, you know, if anything is going to be preserved, people have to care about it in some ways. I think, you know, what is needed is a thousand more, uh, you know, efforts to, you know, bring city uh, ri- rivers to life. You know, their histories, you know, making uh, parts of them accessible and enjoyable. And there are efforts towards this end, you know, and the there are still areas um, on the banks of the Yuxke that, that have always been great to visit. People like Sean and Tato are imagining new efforts to preserve and protect water, even in the city. Promoting uh, these experiences of rivers and in, in um, giving more information about them that people will begin to care. And it is crucial that people do begin to care because um, it remains an incredibly water-stressed part of the world. In 2019, Joburg came so perilously close to the equivalent of Cape Town's day zero. Um, It wasn't well known, but, you know, the systems were really, really straining and and Joburg was almost without water. And that can and probably will happen again. And so to to absolutely dismiss uh, the water resources that are there naturally occurring to just let all of that flow and join toxic flows and disappear. I don't think that's that's a good idea at all. Um, New ways need to be found to, to capitalize and to care. often builds dams when it faces water challenges, but Professor Anthony Turton from Free State Province in South Africa says we seriously need to rethink them. South Africa became water constrained, fundamentally water constrained economy. And as subsequent to that, with climate change having kicked in and global warming having kicked in, our rainfall has gone down from the original number that it was 53 billion cubic meters per annum. As we done, it was revised down to about 51 and then to 48. So we are getting less and less rainfall. It's a non-linear relationship between rainfall and runoff. Uh, if we get less rainfall, we get even less uh, runoff in the river. And uh, therefore, this is our problem now in South Africa. We have to think about a, f- a future, uh, a strategic future that is not based on large dams. This is our major challenge. Anthony's story takes an interesting turn when he reframes South Africa as a country with a prosperous future that doesn't actually have a water problem, but instead has a salt problem. I'm Michelle Constant. And I'm Gugule Tumshongo. Thank you for listening. All our podcasts are available at jojo.co.za. The series was made possible because of Jojo for Water for Life. Find us on social media at For Water for Life and share your water stories using the hashtag Listen to the Water. Because if you do, it can change your life. From the Jojo family to yours, we hope you enjoyed this episode of For Water for Life. 
Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters, or other water solutions, Jojo has the product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.za and find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for all the latest product news and water-related content.